Hey guys, it's Briars. Just want to tell you what's going on down at uh, Meltdown Comics in Hollywood. We got Meltthology. Meltthology is a monthly comics jam at Meltdown every third Tuesday of the month. Here's how it works. Show up at the Melt at 7 p.m. and draw a page of whatever you want. At 9.30 p.m. we'll collect all of the art and $3 for printing costs. When you come to the next month's comics jam, you'll get a zine with everyone's contributions inside. There is no set theme, and all skill levels are welcome. Last but not least, Meltthology contributors get 10% off their Meltdown purchase on the night of the event. Go to at Meltthology on Twitter or Facebook if you have any specific questions. Ask for Chuck, and that is at Melt underscore Thology. Hello and welcome back to Pod Sequentialism. I am your host, Matt Kennedy. We're taping here at Meltdown, so if you hear anything in the background that sounds a little crazy or loud or like maybe we're being applauded, that is possible, but it's also possible that there's another great event happening just around the corner. Now today on the show, we're going to have a really great in-depth conversation with one of my favorite artists, contemporary artist named Christopher Ulrich, uh, also a very good friend. You've heard him mentioned on this podcast in previous shows. And uh, with Abe Rose, with Frank Forte, and um, why I thought it'd be really great to have Christopher on the show. Um, not technically a sequential artist, but um, I think it's going to be very inspirational when you, when you hear just about uh, where he's come from, what he's doing, where it goes, and how uh, this can affect you in your quest to break into comics or just to appreciate them. So uh, welcome to the show, Christopher Ulrich. Thank you. It's nice to be here. So um, we've known each other for quite a few years now. We figured out it's been about seven years, I guess, uh, in L.A. Yeah, can you imagine that? I know, right? And um, one of the things that I think um, drew us into the same interests, um, and we're about the same age. I believe so, yes. Yeah. Um, aside from just the general interest in those things that most of us are into, if we're into any of this, you know, comic books and horror films, and fantasy literature and that type of thing. Um, what makes you perhaps a little bit different is that your parents are European from Europe. Yes, that's right. And um, your dad is from Switzerland, Switzerland. Mm-hmm. and your mom is from France. France. Yeah. And so I'm you, the first American in my family. And so, do you think that that had a, a particular impact on um, maybe your exposure to the arts at a young age? Well, that's a very interesting question. I don't, I don't necessarily know what doesn't have an impact. I mean, I remember um, the actual first impact I had was smell. Mm-hmm. Um, my father had um, in the garage oil paints mm-hmm. and an oil painting, and I remember smelling it, and that was one of my first, like, real powerful experiences. And then he had a book, and he had a book on Rembrandt, and I was just, you know, it was just... Uh, uh, and then, of course, then you go off and watch Scooby Doo, uh, you know, and you know it's it's it, and I had a you know collection of like um, plastic sharks because I was really into Jaws. Yeah. So it's like you know you have this whole weird mixture of you know Scooby Doo, Rembrandt, and a great white shark, and you know you're well on your way into the arts. Yeah. Well, the for people who don't know, and we've um, we've touched on this in previous podcasts, but Christopher Ulrich is probably the best artist that you may not know about. Um, he's a gracious guy. He's rolling his eyes when I say these things. 
Um, but a lot of his contemporaries have turned to him for advice on technique or in kind of straightening out the, the narrative to the work. And he's been a very giving um, instructor. And he has a lot of formal training. Um, and I guess we should probably talk about that. You know, that, um, I mean, there's no shortcut to greatness. And I remember having a conversation with Lori Lipton and, and people always come up to her and they ask her, oh, what's the trick? Inspiration. You know, what's the trick? Yeah. And she says, uh, the trick is that I've done absolutely nothing except draw for the last 30 years. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I don't leave my room. Um, and, you know, she was for a very long time basically living upstairs in a church in England and producing this incredibly tight work. And um, that's kind of the rule and not the exception, that you need training, you need to paint every single day, and you have to work to to make your technique better. But um, tell me a little bit about that. Where do you think that... At what point did you start to realize, hey, I think I have a knack for this, and then decide to take it a little bit further? Oh, I don't, you know, for me, I never have that feeling. You I never? never <laughs> no, I never have that feeling I have a knack for it or, or, you know, I mean, that's something that's later associated with you. Um, mm. I think it starts with just an, um, you know, a commitment or just a desire or a need and um, perhaps those things backwards. You know, it first starts with the need. Um, you know, I remember, you know, there's some kids scribbling on paper and, and some get off and do something else and some start to see something in the scribble. Mm. And and perhaps there there's a dialogue there that begins. You know, it's not just you're expressing yourself, but the very thing that you're doing begins to talk to you. Or you begin to have this dialogue. I mean, it's a very odd way of putting it. But what I'm saying is that, you know, it's mysterious in that regard where, you know, you get inspired or you you see something that doesn't exist and you scribble it down. And then you struggle because it looks like a mess. And, and then you see what other people can do and you're just, I mean, they're like magicians. You're like just amazed that they can, they can draw and they can tell stories and and um, they can make imagery and you know for me it was just it was my um, it was my absolute you know way of expressing myself it was my prime way of expressing myself mm. and also learning and and you know I had a hard time uh, beginning learning as other kids would you know I always was the, the last one in the spelling bee or something like this I you know for me letters were pictures um, and uh you know you grow you grow from it and it, and and you meet incredible people and um and you meet masters and we'll go down all that line and yeah, um yeah. and then you meet people that were just like you and then suddenly you realize that there's something more happening here than just you scribbling or painting or whatnot that you're in some kind of labyrinth i think there's something that um you don't hear addressed too often and being the the child of immigrants, you if you grow up in a household where English is spoken and English is the second language, that you grow up with your ear accustomed to an accent. And so especially when you're young and you're in school, you bring that accent with you to class. And depending on what the mechanical, racial... Um, percentage is in the area that you grow up in, you may be the only person that sounds like that. I know um, I've got friends that grew up, um, you know, north of Boston who were Vietnamese and who were um, Dominican in a largely white neighborhood. 
And so there was the challenge of um, finding their own method of speech. But I think that that's one thing, that's one step away from discovering who you are that maybe most people don't experience immediately. That that gives you an automatic level of separation, which can in a way help you um, in, a, in a good way, in an empowering way, but not always. Um, develop back into, okay, well, this is my inner dialogue and I'm going to create this. And that can be a way of either coping with sounding different or with um, having a completely different experience. I mean, the other thing is that if you grow up in, I don't know, if you grow up in, in Texas and for miles around, everybody has, you know, whether they're Southern Baptists or something, if you are the Catholic kid or the Jewish kid or the um, Buddhist kid that grows up in an environment that ha that is of a completely different um, uh, spiritual belief system, then that is also something which is a little bit different. And so your view of the world that everybody else that's standing right beside you for six hours a day in a schoolroom, um, that those differences become uh, paramount to you personally. Do you think that that in any way was indicative of your creative expression or do you think it's completely unrelated well let's just take for you know let's just let's just take it from this point of view let's just say for example that it's meaningful the place that you were born in yeah let's just let's just go from that assumption not like that it's all random but but let's look at it from a you know a fun creative point of view i was very fortunate to be in los angeles mm-hmm I was very fortunate. Um, even though I was kind of disconnected from whatever lineage that my parents came from, um, during that time in Los Angeles, which was like during the 70s and 80s, I mean, it was, it was, goodness. Wow. <laughs> so, it's, uh, Who knew the 80s uh, would get such a scream? Yes, yes. Well, you know, it's nice to see the phantoms are with us. Yes. Um, I, you know, as a kid, I was just, um, I was largely on my own to discover things. Mm -hmm. I didn't, you know, I didn't really have a very strong cultural um, enforcement. You know what I mean? It was kind of, you were on your own. And I remember... Well, now they'd call that free-range parenting. You yes. Know, but in the 70s when we grew up, it was just called parenting. Yes. 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 So um, I remember being fascinated by a variety of things. And I, I was a huge, I was really into... Egyptian mythology, and there was that Tutankhamun exhibition at LACMA. In 1976 in Boston. Yeah. yeah, I was just begging my father to take me to it. Um, I was also, for some reason, put into um, Catholic school. Mm -hmm. I went to Catholic elementary school, and I didn't know this at the time, but my father is like Protestant. He's not even Catholic. But <laughs> I guess I was, you know, he his, his business partner that he came uh, over... Um, to the states with his his sons were in this school, so mm -hmm. I followed them, and um, I I just remember with that whole mixture of things, I really began on this you know real incredible journey. I remember going into the garden and seeing this you know statue of of a woman stepping on a snake, mm -hmm. and I thought that was the coolest thing I ever seen. I didn't know it was like the Virgin Mary and all this sort of stuff, you know. What right. I, mean? I just thought this like this woman crushed like crushing a snake. I mean, he was like, what is that? 
what the is Virgin that? Mary as proto-feminist art object is, is probably a pretty fascinating uh, <laughs> well, springboard. Through, it's interesting when you look at it with an undogmatic mind mm-hmm. and you look at it purely, you know, fresh. And like, I like not knowing what the thing was intended to be. I like discovering what it's telling me that it is. Right. You know, it's always nice later to learn, but, you know, I was just fascinated by the imagery. I remember being in the church and I was never bored. I thought it was, you know, later it would, there was aspects to it I'm like not into. But, um, you know, as far as the stained glass and all this type of stuff, I mean, it was like, what is all this, you know, I just always was interested in how do you make that? Mm. Well, it's interesting too, because growing up and I, I also grew up in a Catholic household so that, you know, the stained glass of the church was to me a giant comic book because all yes. those stained glass were, you know, the stations of the cross and everything. And it was great if you saw it lit in the afternoon with the sun coming through the glass. It had a very different look than if you were in church at night and the light was illuminating outward. But that... um you know, without I'm maybe belaguring the point that um, that there is a certain education that is inherent if you are uh, in, a, in a Catholic school. And you didn't just go to Catholic elementary school. You ended up learning painting from the Jesuits, too, right, in college. Well, yeah. I mean, I went to uh, Loyola Marymount University. Um, at that time, I after um, high school, I did want to go to art school. But... Uh, uh, there was not a lot of support for that. Um, you know, my father was not into that. He did not want me to pursue the arts at all. Mm-hmm. He wanted, you know, from his perspective, he had worked really hard. He wanted me to to follow in opportunities that he didn't have. Like he wanted me to, you know, I basically was a doctor, a lawyer, you right. know, choose one or something like that. You know, I mean, just typical story. And so I went to, you know, Loyola Marymount and I studied psychology, but I also pursued basically my uh, degree in art. And what was interesting was while I was there, I met a professor who was basically a an actual working, breathing artist. He had a studio, he sold paintings, and he was a real inspiration. And I remember, you know, realizing that if this is something I want to do, I really have I mean, I, I didn't know the first thing. So I remember instead of going to my graduation, you know, wearing that black hat and all this sort of thing, I was in a studio learning how to stretch canvases, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, and he gave me a very traditional and <laughs> very difficult kind of apprenticeship, you know. I mean, he was a real hardcore mentor, mm-hmm. <laughs> to say the least. I mean, there was... There was no messing around. So, you know, and from him, he was an art center graduate. Um, and, you know, I got to learn a lot of things um, by being at that studio. And, you know, there are so many, there's so many different types of knowledges that you have to have than just, you know, learning how to paint, mm. you know. You know, you, you can put a bowl of lemons in front of you, but... Uh, you know, you have to know so much more. And I got a very, very interesting education. Um, but in the end, you know, I think the greatest teacher for me, what I would tell anybody, is your sketchbook. I mean, those are my treasures. You know, a sketchbook is the most, one of the most important tools that I know of. If you're going to go on this journey, 
first thing you got to do is you got to religiously start keeping a sketchbook. Mm, No pun intended. (laughs) Well, um, (laughs) you have to be devoted. I mean, you definitely, I definitely think, you know, one of the things my mentor told me was if you can do something else, do it because this is not something that you eventually you're going to have to work when you're not in the mood to work. Mm. You're going to have to work when you feel like dog meat and you know, that's just, uh, that's just actually part of the real commitment. And I'm going to break the continuity here for a second. And again, because I think a lot of people that will be listening to this podcast won't be familiar with you. And, and, you know, maybe while they're listening to this, they'll Google you and they'll, they'll see images on your website. But that um, there's a long line that um, stretches from the point where you start to create art and where you start to create things that you think you want to be what you do. You know, certainly when I was a, a young kid and I used to sketch with my friends, I thought it'd just be absolutely great to be a comic book artist someday. And as I got older and I realized that my chops weren't there and that um, perhaps my talents <laughs> lied in a different line, that there were people who could do it better than I could. And I, I embraced the opportunity to work with people who I thought were more suited to that activity. But that, you know, not so long ago, there was an exhibition in Mesa, Arizona. Yes. That included um, your 16 foot by 8 foot tall Last Supper painting in which you've replaced the apostles with all the other sun gods. And it's an incredibly um, um, rich portrait. But it's also alchemically important. It's also a, a kind of mystical work. It's in no way dismissive of the the Christian idolatry, if you will, I guess, of the original painting of the, um, of the Da Vinci Last Supper portrait, that there's reverence, but there's a different point of view. And what you talked about is that it is important to see all aspects of everything, but to, you know, you, you, you scribble and then you see something in the scribble that the, um, the work that you create takes on a life of its own and it becomes this other thing. And you have to be open to experiencing that, but you have to be confident enough to be able to put it all down on canvas or on paper or whatever the, the format that you use if you're a sculptor to put it down in ceramics. Um, if, if you're working digitally, then to expand your, your rudimentary horizons to yeah, allow absolutely. something new to come into it. Now, this is, this is a long trek. This wasn't something that happened overnight. This is, and, and to a great degree, you are now entering the beginning of a career that has been happening for quite a long time, but that it's really hitting that stage where people are beginning to become aware of who you are, that different types of work that you've done in different, um, different avenues have started to reach people. One of the people that you went to elementary school with would become a future collaborator. Yes, yes. Well, th- you've touched upon a lot of things. I mean, I think that for me, having a an art career has been a byproduct. Not It wasn't the, in some ways, you know, if you're going to pursue a career in the arts, you don't do what I do. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but at the same time, you know, doing work, it's really fascinating because you can do the work where you're actually you know, wanting to promote and to get your 
skill out there. You know, you do something, you do it well, you do it enough times where you polish it out and you get it out there and you get known for doing that. And then you do similar things to that. And, you know, I understand that model. It's a very smart model. And, um, you know, but if you're, if you're actually doing the work in a way where, um, it's a mystery and you're discovering it and you, and it's, it's, you know, you begin to feel that it's telling you to do this or telling you to do that, um, you go down a very different kind of road. And, you know, when I met you, this was what I was doing. I was basically um, really trying to find or, you know, discover and have an experience, not just make imagery, but to have it be more of something of a living thing. For me, the process. That's why I would, you know, document all the notes, chart the way I'm thinking. And people who don't, don't, who aren't familiar, um, Ulrich's process work produces a copious amount of very detailed large format drawings, um, collage work where it's almost a, a spiritual map of the origin of the image that it references um, combined with um, sometimes sacred, sometimes secular writing. Um, a lot of the various influences from various media become a part of yeah. this mapped out, graphed out um, preliminary drawing. And sometimes it's 20 preliminary drawings that are very large format and very detailed as the piece changes when you start to pull in or to extract um, a, a new specific um, jump-off point for the portrait that you're working on. And I've seen you come to near completion on a painting and then stop and then go back and do it again, changing a very important element that completely changes the context of the story that's being told, but you can see where it came from. There's a lineage. There's like, if it were on glass plates, you could stack them up like a, you know, an encyclopedia of our human atlas. I definitely think it's... some of my best work is hidden. It's yeah. underneath the surfaces. <laughs> I mean, that's just... And some's in the back. Yes. I, I you know, for me, um, I had the opportunity of working at the uh, Norton Simon Museum. And I remember um, at one point I got to actually go down into the vault and I got to take, you know, paintings off the racks and off the walls. And I was just fascinated by the history um, of the notes on the back of the, the paintings, you know, where they had been, you know, and especially the older the painting, oftentimes, you know, more notes were behind it. And, and a lot of people are completely unaware of this. Most people who walk into a museum just see the portrait in the frame hanging on the wall and are completely, maybe blissfully unaware that there's anything on the back of that canvas. And so having access to that is sort of like having, you know, keys to a hole in your living room under the rug that you didn't know was there. And there's this amazing other world down there. I mean, it's like Pan's Labyrinth. I definitely think that, you know, for me, um, art is, um, it's sacred, which means it has no value. It's valueless. It's, you can't put value on something that's sacred because it's it's beyond value. Mm -hmm. But obviously we live in the society that we live in, you know. Um, but there have been many cultures throughout history that have made work 
for an entirely different reasons than to, you know, be able to pay your rent. Mm. You know, they made work for, for invisible universes that we don't even know or don't even believe exist anymore. You know, they, they, they did it for gods and goddesses that have long now been, you know, reclaimed by the earth and, and have been forgotten, you know. And so there's this wonderful cycle that we are engaged in in which we forget and we remember. And I think that when you're, you know, when you're doing the kind of work where you're um, diving deep into, you know, the imagery and, and drawing points of connection and, and graphing, you know, part of it is purging, part of it is, you know, actually finding connection. And, and I'm just so interested in that, you know, and then you say, well, how do you make that viable? You know, so we create, everyone has to create a system for themselves of how they achieve a goal, you know? And for me, when I met you, I began these three major series, you know, I had done the demon eater and then now with you, we did, um, the, the other two and illuminator the, and the, the illuminator and the reckoning. And that was all the things that I learned along the way by doing those things was pretty, pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. Now, what's interesting is, you know, when we were tackling kind of a, a pretty heavy subject, which is when you are creating um, large format fine art pieces, um, it it can seem difficult for someone to look at that and see that there's a huge influence of comic books underneath all of this, oh, yeah. you know, incredible fine painting. And I remember the Savage Sword of Conan as a kid. Yeah. I... I mean, that was like treasure. That was treasure to get your hands on that. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, I, you know, obviously, you know, I mentioned my cousin before. He, you know, I remember him drawing a comic. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was the most incredible thing you could ever do. I remember a drawing to this day he did of his main character was basically Conan. Yeah. (laughs) Chopping a lizard man in half. I thought it was the coolest, you know, and that's where it begins right there, you know. And you've been able to, in the last couple of years, come full circle with that. We we touched on the fact that, um, you know, one of one of your fellow elementary school students um, went on a completely different kind of career path. And then I think as a result of one of the shows that we had, I think it was the fourth Enochian Key show, which was at Billy Shire Fine Arts, that uh, Nimrod yes, got back in Guido. touch with you. Yes, Nimrod and Guido. Nimrod Antol and Guido Martini. Um, boy, I tell you, the turnaround and see them. And it was really, a, you know, it's a great story because Nimrod had in his hands a drawing that I had done uh, when we were in school together. We were kids. And he had apparently, of all the things that he had purged in his life, he still had this drawing. And Talk he, about, um, what are a couple of Nimrod's films? Oh, my goodness. Well, he did a wonderful film called Control. Um, It's a Hungarian film, and it's incredible. And I remember seeing that film, and I didn't even realize he had made it. And it's just, when I put the two to two together, you know, I was just, it was just incredibly meaningful to me. He's also done Predators, Armored, Vacancy, you know, he did the Metallica um, through the never through the never, um, and you worked on that as well. 
Yes, I actually got the storyboard for that. That was that was such an experience. He um he had uh, he had me storyboard that. And, That's kind of uh, great that this is the show that that is after Frank Forte's show. He um storyboarding Frank for Bob's Burgers and uh, he's got the new show Emoji through Sony, which I don't think we got to touch on. But um that two of you who have such completely different styles and really completely different backgrounds wind up doing the same job. Now, I remember um, talking to Nimrod and especially about, you know, having you on set to do this and you coming to him and saying, Oh, you know, I, I don't think I got that much done today. And, and him turning and shaking his head incredulously. It's like, well, you did 10 pages of continuity today when I think the average is one and a half to three pages, but having no frame of reference because the amount of images you're producing in your head that have to make it through your hand to hit the graphite, to hit the, the paper, can be a level of frustration. I think that's um, an issue that a lot of people who have problems producing, and this is, of course, the most sequential art you can produce, is to do a shot list for a director. Well, working for him is really special because, you know, we did basically what we did as kids, where he would do a sketch, and then I would elaborate on it. Mm -hmm. And... You know, a lot of the storyboarding with him, you know, he's um, such an amazing creator that he, he makes actually very accurate sketches. And it's um, misleading. If you look at it, you think, oh, it's, it seems simple, but it isn't. The absolute angle is correct. And and so I got to, you know, working with him so closely and burning through a lot of pencils. Yeah. Uh, it was it was a lot of it was a lot of fun really incredible and also to be able to be a little bit in his world and to see how he paints um with people like like a huge i mean a film is like a grand tapestry of moving parts and requires you know an entirely different skill emotion mosaic yes mm. and it's just amazing to have you know worked on that project and met you know, all those people that I got to meet. And, uh, and to be working on a Metallica project. I mean, when you talk about going I back actually to being 13. Got to, yes, I actually got to see my first Metallica concert in nice. Vancouver. That was an experience. That yeah. was that was something else. They are they are pretty, uh, pretty incredible. And uh, working with uh, the future Green Goblin at that point. Um, although it oh, seems yes. like that franchise is going to get brushed under the rug. But um, by Sony, I think that they're going to relaunch um, Spider-Man again already after only two films. But that to see, especially it's, it's interesting to see as an artist who's creating something completely from scratch most of the time, like literally from scratch, yeah. um, to work in an environment where there are so many people working on one thing. Yes, it's, it's, a, it's, it's really... It's completely different. It's like being turned inside out. But that that also changed the way you paint a little bit. Well, I think every I think every project you do, uh, especially something that grand, changes you forever. Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember um, Nimrod telling me that you know these these experiences do change you, and he was completely correct. I mean, you know, they open you up, um, they show your strengths and your weaknesses. Um, and I think that that's what making great art should really be. It should really be, you should be always in some way vulnerable mm -hmm. and willing to be vulnerable because it's only by 
by having that that lack of protection that you you know and and yes there are many hits you take but man the insight and the power that you gain from that you know they say that the spirit grows from a wound yeah and there are some people that waste so much time and energy projecting some kind of you know superiority or some kind of invulnerability and uh you know, I just don't have time for that. I really don't have any time for, you know, that kind of nonsense. I mean, you know, there's something in alchemy where you burn something to a crisp and you keep destroying it and destroying it. And, and then when what's ever left, you, 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 you know, you destroy that as well. And, and then you think, wait a minute, I'm supposed to be an artist. I'm supposed to be creating. And half the time, you know, I, I feel like I'm destroying things, you know, especially as you've mentioned earlier, how you'll see me work on the walls and then or on the canvases and, you know, I completely obliterate it, but that's what it's about, you know, um, editing and you, you only edit when you realize that, oh, I'm going away from my original intention or my intention has changed and I've discovered something deeper. There's got to be something kind of personally gratifying too about being an artist who There's going to be something, you know, personally gratifying too about, you know, here's a guy who in 1995 walks into the San Diego Comic-Con with a portfolio. Oh my goodness. Of this drawings. Is a story. And walks up and shows um, a few artists and just gets torn to pieces. As well, I think everybody who is, who's ever done this has. I have, I have, I've, I've failed in a number of ways and i continue to fail so a fool who you know uh c continues what, what was the saying that the fool who um um what was that saying anyway it doesn't matter but the point is i've always wanted to make comics and i've always wanted to make games and i have failed in those miserably and i it's to to a great extent and i love it but that's I also it. that's also changing so i mean here you yes. go and, and you know i'll, I'll finish the thought is that why it, it has to be very personally gratifying is that 20 years almost to the day um, from the, the last Comic-Con, you went to this year's Comic-Con. Yes. And you had, you know, with you completed sketches of a toy line which is going to go into production, you know, for yes. the Dementoids, another yes. project that you worked on with, um, with George Nimrod. And, yeah, and, and George and Aileen from October Toys. Yeah. And simultaneously are um, muraling a a theme bar in Pasadena. Yes, that serves Bavarian fare, um, and you created a complete mythology for the walls that is going to be documented, released in a book. Um, we'll have a, a there's a film associated with the making of that. Um, you've come off just two years prior working on a major motion picture with Metallica, probably, you know, one of the the most iconic heavy metal bands. And then, you know, by the time this podcast is broadcast, on the stands will be an issue of Heavy Metal Magazine with eight pages of your artwork in it. Yes, you make it sound very luxurious, but thank you. <laughs> well, awesome. the, the, it's, I think that there's a lot of people who they take a failure not as a learning experience or as something to take forward, but as a failure. And it becomes this 
insurmountable impasse where that they 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 feel a little browbeaten and i think that anybody who has gone to art school has a little bit of a thicker skin about this i think so i think that um i'm very fortunate in that regard i mean when i use the word failure i mean more like you know imagine you have a cauldron in front of you and you keep trying to you know concoct a spell and, mm-hmm. it, and you keep getting this wonderful colored smoke you know popped into your face and the joy is you know creating something that becomes alive i mean i remember being in 1995 at the first you know comic book and you know comic-con with my little sketchbook as you said and mm-hmm. i remember seeing for the first time a picture of hellboy we'll clarify your first comic-con <laughs> Yeah, my my first, that's what I meant. Yes. yes, my first Comic-Con. Well, there were no Comic-Cons, by the way, that existed before that. <laughs> before you walked obviously. into the hall, yes. So, um, but I remember seeing for the first time a picture of Hellboy, and I didn't even know what Hellboy was. Mm-hmm. I didn't even know that those were horns, that like, the discs on his head. Yeah. I was so perplexed and... Like, why is he wearing goggles that are above his head? Yeah, and, yeah. Then, and, then, to tur- and then to see what it would turn into, and then, you know... And then you mentioned now 20 years later, you know, going again to, you know, Comic-Con and, you know, getting to, you know, do a piece for a Del Toro show and, you know, a little Kronos piece because I love that movie. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's just we're a part of this history. We're not just outside it. I think that a lot of times when someone is, you know, young and and, and full of hopes and dreams and, and has been initiated into this mystery, um, you sometimes feel like you're on the outside of things, but I really do believe it's a labyrinth. You know, you have beginners that enter into it, and you have veterans, you have people who have made a certain comfortable niche in certain part of the labyrinth and stay there. But the point of it in the end... Every labyrinth needs a minotaur. Well, that that's <laughs> that's... That's sometimes the thing that you either are going towards or avoid most. Yeah. And that's at the center. And and you always have to find what your center is. And you always have to find what you were meant to make. I think that everybody is meant to make something. And I think if you persevere, despite handicaps, misfortune, just one thing you got to do is you got to get out the thing that you were meant to create. I really do believe that everyone was meant to create something. Mm-hmm. And I think some people have turned their back on that and are, you know, outright killers and that's a whole nother discussion but i think in the end you know you never you should never diss somebody at the end of the line or some young fresh face or something with some eager little book because you know have you ever seen the sketch of kermit the frog on like it's like a little sketch i mean that character changed the world i mean you know it's it's amazing to it's amazing to um, be a part of this thing. And I've always said, you know, that if it wasn't for Carl Sagan oh, yeah. and Jim oh. Henson, I don't know what I would have learned. You see right there when you say that, like I got chills down my, I mean, like my whole arm. I mean, Carl Sagan for me was such a pioneer, a mind opener. I mean, I love space. I love the beauty of space. I, I'm, I'm intrigued by it. And then puppets. Space and puppets, I mean, yeah. you just don't get better than that. <laughs> yeah, Jim Henson and Carl Sagan were hugely influential on exciting my generation about learning. And they're, it's different now. I mean, there's a lot more noise. There's, there's certainly more than four or five channels on every television now. Um, 
and so I think it's it would behoove parents to maybe curate what it is that their that their kids get to watch. It's not just the channels, it's it's the technology. Mm. I mean, I see so many young kids with these, you know, the iPhones and these things and they're just kind of you know swirling it with their finger and all this and you know, it's a it's an entirely different phenomenon. I remember when you and I were kids, you know, we had a bicycle. Yeah. Was, you know, it was, then if you want to change the screen, you had to ride to the next block, you yeah. know, and around every corner was something that could, you know, and then when you went to go see a film, like I remember seeing Dark Crystal mm-hmm. and I was just, you know, speaking of Henson and, and I mean, you know, just being blown away, you know, and this, this like, I guess you, I guess knowledge was harder to come by. And it was at our time and more appreciated and because more, of it. Yeah, and and you know now we are in an age in which literally the times of the uh, Library of Alexandria have returned. I mean, you have virtually more knowledge at your fingertips than any other previous generation ever had. Ever, the amount of power an individual person has today is extraordinary. If you have, if you've ever you know, done any kind of, you know, imagination and or history or, you know, learned about things long ago. I mean, they had different advantages, actually, but they had major disadvantages. Yeah. And, you know, this is the fascinating thing about, you know, the generations is that you're one of them. <laughs> yeah, there's a different culture of individuality now in that when in the pre-internet age, and the irony being, of course, that what, you know, anybody who's listening to this is listening to it on, on online. Yeah. That um, obviously this could not have existed um, in an age past, but that you learned something because you were interested. You got interested because you found it, sometimes by accident, sometimes because it was exposed to you. And you would follow that line down. That meant going to the library. That meant, you know trying to find access to that greater well of information any way that you could. And now it's it's certainly a lot easier, I, but I think that the, the way things have improved is that it's not as easy and in a good way for a person to remain completely alone. But I mean... And that you can find your tribe online. It, by searching for certain things, you can find a lot of people who are into those things. Because people have access to more information, there's a lot more specialized information available that can unite people, that can bring people together, and can bring collaborators together. The downside um, is the quality of that information can be exaggerated that it is much more difficult to differentiate between good information and bad information and that you can also have the type of individuality that you have in Japan where you can be in an intersection with 400,000 people, none of whom are paying any attention to the other people around them at all, that um, you can become, even in a large group of people, completely alone and completely isolated. But... um, the, the cultural difference of that aside, I think that the expansion in in a way through this technology can be helpful in a way that we never imagined and slightly harmful in a way that we probably did. Well, like with all things, I mean, you know, for instance, I love the name of this 
this um, show, I believe, this pod sequentialism, because mm. like right there, um, what does that mean to me? It's like metamorphosis, like a pod, you're in a cocoon, and, <laughs> and you go through these different stages. I think it's very harmful if you stay at a particular stage. Right. At some point, you have to break the pod and you have to actually go travel. If you're always traveling via on the screen or whatever, or virtually, you know, um, there's harm there. I mean, there's, you have to, you know, there's a great benefit to actually go to a library. Mm-hmm. I've had very bizarre experiences in a library. Oh, in yeah. fact, the best thing about going to a library is not what you're, the research you're doing or the book you find. It's some weird random person you bump into or some strange event you witness. I mean, there's, knowledge is never ultimately just what you're seeking. It's what happens to you as you seek it. It's what, how, it's what, it's all the things that you didn't expect to discover. And as an artist, you have to, for my opinion, you have to be adventurous. You have to really have guts. I mean, you, in, and you got to go into the dark cave. You got to go to the country you don't know anything about. You got to, you got to um, withstand watching your friends, you know, get jobs and have babies and and you know what i mean while you're still trying to do the very thing you were always trying to do since you were a kid in some ways you're stunted so you have to do things that augment that you know and you know you have to interact with people and 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 more importantly you have to balance that with a very you have to produce and create an intimate time with your own self that you can actually produce things and i think that it takes a lot of different types of combinations of things. But you don't need to think about all this. All you need to think about is, what is this thing that I'm, you know, I was so inspired when I heard about um, the author of the Harry Potter. You know, I learned about Harry Potter because I was actually teaching kids art or being taught by them <laughs> how to teach them. Um, and I remember they all had these books, these Harry Potter books, and I would um rolling correct as the author and she she was like a waitress you know on welfare mm-hmm. and and living in her car i believe and you think about how many people make an excuse about you know like not being too tired to like you know draw when they come home or too tired you know i mean of course you're too tired but if you have this need this story what's so fascinating is it just might be real and what i mean by real meaning not just an extension or manifestation of your ego, but actually something something that has its own life. Mm-hmm. And in that regard, more substantial because it will then change your life. You know, a lot of people, if they have a success and they create something that just catches fire and that people love, it's very easy for you to say, oh, that's me. No, it's, people don't love you. They love this thing you created. That's the zeitgeist, the aggregate of the information, the metadata. Yeah. And, you know, in many ways, you know, you know, this is channeling. You channel this stuff. I mean, where do these things come from? Where does the idea come from? What is an idea? You know, and you have a lot of people have a different opinion on that. You know, art is always the, the secondary concept that always leads you into what was behind it, which is... This thing was felt before it was created. This thing was, you know, like you just gave me this wonderful book on Frazetta. And late last night when I was working, I, I sat down and I just, I opened up the book to that death dealer. Yeah. 
And I remember as a kid at like um, October Fest, you know, it was autumn, Halloween. And I remember seeing that image on like, a, I would think it was a poster. And I'm telling you, my imagination went right through the roof. And, you know, it's it's a masterpiece. You know, that's a masterpiece that can, can do that. It's greater than the sum total of its parts. Mm. Well, I think that's a pretty great place to end. And um, But before we go, I want to give people an opportunity to be able to find your work. We've talked about a few things, but where can people uh, find you online? Uh, ChristopherUlrich.com is my um, website. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then there's various galleries, you know, like La Luz de Jesus. You can go there and, um, you know, scroll back into some of the past shows. And, you know, uh, 2012, that's where you, that's a good year to start in December. That's the Chronic Crater series. Um, the Reckoning. That was the Reckoning. It was the Reckoning, which uh, I'm glad we did talk about. <laughs> and uh, we've also got um, a set of murals that are, will have reached completion by the time this podcast airs in the um, in Pasadena. Yeah, at the Wolf Cough uh, in Pasadena on the uh, corner of Union and um, Fair Oaks. Um, that's a wonderful project. I'm, you know, illustrating or painting a a mythology in a bar and it's pretty cool excellent well again i want to thank my guest christopher ulrich i want to thank my listeners this has been pod sequentialism i am matt kennedy and we'll we'll hit you up next time bye-bye melt you the school at meltdown where they teach you the skills to make comic books some of the current classes include creating comics drawing comics for kids and the art of inking Coming soon, there will be classes for short film writing, drawing basics, and kids make zines. Go to meltcomics.com and enroll now.